Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can join us in person or catch our online gatherings by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church. We would love to hear from you. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning. As you know, we are making our way through the entire Bible this year, and today we are in week 26, which means we've hit the halfway point. And today we are in the last book of the Old Testament in most of our Bibles. But we're going through the Bible the way Jesus would have read through Scripture, which means uh, we are going through it in the Tanakh order. Uh, We started the year with the first five books known as the Torah, and we've been making our way through the Nevi'im, also called the Prophets. And tomorrow in our reading plan, we will begin reading through the Ketuvim, or the writings. But today, we finish up the Prophets and come to the final prophetic word in the Hebrew Bible, Malachi. Now, we don't know very much about Malachi himself. In fact, we don't even know if that's his actual name because his name means my messenger. So, whether it's God speaking through my messenger or a guy named Malachi, the message is vitally important for God's people at the time and just as timely and important to us today. One of the reasons I think we find Malachi at the end of our Old Testament is that he pretty much sums up the entire Old Testament in about 15 minutes and four short chapters. You should definitely read the rest of the Old Testament, but you'll find almost all of the primary themes right here in these four short chapters. And if you want an even shorter message, which we all do, you can sum up the message of the whole book and the whole Old Testament in chapter 3, verse 7, which says, Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says Yahweh Almighty. Now, before we get too far into the book, let's talk about context. It's been about 170 years since the Israelites had been taken captive into Babylon because of their sin. Now, God had promised that this captivity would not be permanent. And so, after 70 years, He returned them home again to the Promised Land. Well, when they come back, they undergo this national revival. They make all of these reforms under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, which we're going to read about in a couple of months. But within a generation, those promises of reform had worn off. What didn't wear off, however, was their external commitment to religion. This was the time period when the groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees formed, and all of their emphasis on external behavior. The book is designed as a series of disputes. Most sections begin with God saying something, making a claim or an accusation, and then Israel will disagree or question God's statement, and then God will respond and offer the last word. This happens about six times. These charges are against religious active people who look great on the outside, but whose hearts are actually pretty cold toward God on the inside. Now, I just want to warn you, Malachi is going to get in people's faces and in their business. But if we pay attention, these accusations can hit close to home in our lives as well. So as we listen to God speak to his people then, perhaps it's his people now who need to hear these words and continue to apply their truth to our lives. So with that warning, Let's look at the first dispute. Malachi is going to say, you may be religious, but you're also suspicious. Yahweh says, I have loved you. 
But you asked, the Israelites like, you know, dispute, how have you loved us? And Yahweh declares, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob. And then God reminds them of how he graciously chose the family of Jacob, their ancestor, to become the carrier of God's covenant promises instead of Esau, his brother, and the family that came from him, who eventually came to ruin. So think back to the stories we read in Genesis and also about Edom's downfall told by Obadiah. Um, So right from this first dispute, Israel is exposed as suspicious, doubting God's love and faithfulness. Dispute number two has to do with their lack of honoring God by despising him through their subpar sacrifices they're bringing to the temple. So they may be religious, but they're also self-seeking. Malachi is going to call them out and say, sure, you're at the temple all the time. You're always bringing offerings to sacrifice. You look good on the outside, but inwardly, you're actually saying, oh, what a burden. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says Yahweh? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to Yahweh. For I am a great king, says Yahweh Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. He says, I am a great king, so it's like I deserve a great offering. But their worship was consistent and frequent and regular but it was half-hearted. They gave the lame and the sick from their flocks, things that didn't really cost them, their leftovers or things out of their excess. So we have to turn the mirror on ourselves and ask, what is God getting from me? Is it my first and my best, or does God get my leftovers? Does my giving to God cost me anything? And giving is not just about money, but does my living cost me anything for God? Am I giving God the best of my time, of my work, of my talents? Something is getting your best. And God says, don't you think I deserve that? So the people are suspicious in that they don't know if God loves them. They're self-seeking, thinking about themselves. And the third dispute God lets them know is that they're also self-centered rather than God-centered. This is demonstrated by how they're treating their marriages. Here's what's happening. If you read chapter 2, you'll see that many of the Jewish men had taken a fancy to foreign women who worshipped foreign gods. And the men found them attractive and they were marrying them instead of godly Hebrew women. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary Yahweh loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. And some of these guys were even divorcing their wives to marry one of these women. Another thing you do, you flood Yahweh's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because Yahweh is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So God confronts them in two ways. First, he says, your marriage was a covenant you made before me, and it was supposed to reflect my love. Second, he says, one of my primary intentions of your marriage was to raise up godly children. But you, he says, you've started to look at marriage as if it were all about you, your wants, your desires. Marriage was supposed to be this earthly picture of God's love. We become one like he is. But these people are getting a divorce because they're just no longer getting along or their wife is no longer making them happy. 
but what if God loved us like that? No, God's love is a commitment. It's a covenant. And that can be reflecting in godly marriages, but it's not happening in Malachi's day, and God calls them out on it. But it doesn't stop there. Dispute number four, God says you are religious, but also unbelieving. You have wearied Yahweh with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of Yahweh, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? So after all God had done for them, they were still looking around at the world saying, listen, God, it's not fair. God, like, how do we really know that you love us? Are you even up there? Now keep in mind, God had delivered them from captivity, not once, but twice. And God says, still, you doubt my commitment to you? What more would I have to do? Like I delivered you from Pharaoh's entire army, led you through the wilderness by a cloud, gave you miraculous provisions of food and clothing. I defeated enemies like three times your size right in front of you. And then I explained to you that my ways are not your ways. And you could always trust that I was working, even when you couldn't see what I was doing. But you still say, well, maybe God's not good. Maybe God's not even there. So it's, it's one thing to ask God questions, but it's another thing to persistently fail to trust Him. God says it wearies Him. And God answers their questions by saying that He's going to send a messenger who will prepare for the people, for God's personal return in the day of the Lord. He will come like a fire to purify his people, to remove idolatry, sexual immorality, and injustice, so that only the faithful remnant is left to become his people. I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says Yahweh Almighty. The fifth dispute has to do with the people being untrusting. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says Yahweh Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says Yahweh Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says Yahweh Almighty. So God confronts their selfishness by not trusting Him with their money. He tells them how they have stopped offering a tithe of their income to the temple. It's the amount of their income and produce that Israelites were to annually donate to support the temple and its priests. Now, the practice is laid out in different parts of the Torah. And we know from Malachi and from the book of Nehemiah that the people were neglecting this responsibility. So the temple was falling into disrepair. So God confronts them. He says he wants to bless them with abundance, but only if they're going to trust that he can provide. Clearly, God doesn't ask for it because he needs it, but he commands them to give it as a way of declaring their trust in him. But the people are being untrusting. And the final dispute, the people declare that following all of God's decrees are actually unrewarding in real life. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says Yahweh. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before Yahweh Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. 
Certainly, evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. So the people accuse God and say that it is pointless to serve Him. They observe wicked, prideful people succeeding in life, and God does nothing. But instead of responding as He has before with a speech, God tells a short story about a group of faithful people who get together and discuss how to honor and serve God. And so God gives them a book to read together. So the answer to people who can't see what God is doing in this world is a group of people reading a book. That's exactly what we're trying to do this year by reading through God's Word so we can be the people of God and have the eyes to see. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Six disputes that reveal that these people who are hyper-religious on the outside, but on the inside their heart still doesn't really belong to God. Religious, but suspicious, self-seeking, self-centered, unbelieving, untrusting, and doubting whether following God is actually rewarding at all. So, what is the answer? Do they simply need more repentance? Like someone else to yell at them? Another reform? When we read Ezra and Nehemiah, we're going to find the people returning and a great reformation where the people commit to give God their first and their best, to take care of God's temple with their tithes, and to honor God with their marriages. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. And they don't even make it to the end of Nehemiah before he's pulling out their hair because they're breaking their promises. And a hundred years later in Malachi, they are continuing the cycle of sin. Malachi says, this is the problem Israel has had from the beginning. You made big promises, but you never followed through. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Think about the Exodus. Israel has just received the Ten Commandments and they promise to obey it with their whole lives. Then Moses is gone a few days longer than they had expected and they said, God has abandoned us and they make this golden calf and worship it. Think about 2 Samuel chapter 7. King David gets the most stunning promise of the covenant ever given. And a couple pages later, he's sleeping with Bathsheba. You and I, were the same way. We don't need someone who will come and give us new laws. We need someone who will come and give us new life. We don't need someone who will come onto the scene of history with calls to just reform. We need a Savior who can come into our hearts with the power of rebirth. And so, God answers this problem we face with His solution in chapter 4. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says Yahweh Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says Yahweh Almighty. The anointed one, the Messiah, Malachi is talking about, is the answer to our dilemma. The sun rises on a new day, and the sun has a twofold job. One is to burn away evil like a furnace, and the other is to provide light and life and heat for those who revere Yahweh. 400 years after Malachi closed his book, Jesus stepped onto the scene of history and picked up right where Malachi left off. Malachi said, Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says Yahweh Almighty. And Jesus enters the world and his first message was, Repent! 
in Mark 1.15. And then he went around reversing the curse that Malachi ended the Old Testament with. He healed diseases. He calmed storms. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. And the reason he could do that was because he absorbed the curse. He took the furnace of God's wrath so he could be the healing son of righteousness to us. So now we have to choose what the Messiah will be to us, a furnace or the sun. Malachi and the rest of the prophets have pointed forward to the Savior who would come, and we have to choose whether we will receive him as the son of righteousness or face him as the furnace of judgment. And the prophets have showed us that in every area of our lives, we desperately need something beyond ourselves and our own strength. Many of us are still stuck in Old Testament waves of powerless rituals and empty promises, and it's time to get into the healing, life-giving power of the New Testament, where you start leaping like a calf released from its stall. This is what the Messiah will do. He will release you from the powerless shackles of empty religion and put you in the power of new life and joy. Religion puts you in chains. The Son of Righteousness sets you free. And He can do this if we will just return to Him with all of our hearts to cry out to him for help. And so that's today. That's how I want to end today, in a posture of repentance and desperation as we go to the table together. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week. 